0: tonight we come back to the fourth chapter of the book of philippians if you would turn there in your bibles philippians chapter 4 and verse 10 we move into paul's final subject for the evening tonight in philippians 4:10 our text tonight will be from philippians 4:10 4, to 14 we'll note that this actually this section concludes all, or runs all the way to the end of the chapter So this is one continuous topic that uh, runs through this. We'll just take a portion of it this evening. And, And we've seen so much that Paul has covered. It's hard to believe that there's only been four chapters that he's brought all of this to us in. That we have seen the elements of this great church, arguably the best church in the New Testament. We've seen Paul's encouragement to them in prayer and therein to us, repeatedly stated both in the first chapter as well as in the third and fourth. We have seen the gospel brought forward and power. We've seen Paul's selflessness in the proclamation of the gospel, that it's never been about him. It's not about him looking like the gospel preacher and the minister to the Gentiles. He could care less as long as the gospel is going forward. And such a wonderful picture for us to recognize in that perspective. We've seen humility brought forth and our example for humility as probably nowhere else exists in the New Testament. As the beginning of chapter 2 came forward. And then the incredible doctrinal section on the two natures of Christ. And such a a beautiful perspective for us. We've seen Paul talk about his ministry companions, his goal in chapter 3 of life. a, A chapter that we could just go over and over again as he encourages us to continue to strive forward. To continue to forget what lies behind and to keep reaching forward to the goal, to the gospel of Christ. And that's just what we've been praying for. Because these that are going through this intense affliction, that's what they need, and that's what we need. We need that recognition that whatever lies behind us is just that, and that regardless of our current circumstances, we press on for Christ. And that's what Paul so perfectly revealed. We've seen the the cure for anxiety and the provision of peace at the beginning of the fourth chapter, and now he comes to his last discussion— And I've titled our message in this last section, A Provisional Consideration. A Provisional Consideration. Now, when we think of something that's provisional, then we often will think or consider something that is temporary as that which is provisional. And yet, although that's what we might be tended to move toward, that's not what we're referring to tonight. Rather, we're speaking of provisional with regards to the item and the elements of provisions. That is, our subject is a matter of sustenance and provision. Or, in short, what all of that boils down to is money. Because that's where provisions all come from. So our our subject really focuses on that topic. And inside our text, a provisional consideration. Let's go ahead and read these first verses in verses 10 to 14, and then we'll make a few points as we go through them. Philippians 4 and verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So, as we come to our text and a provisional consideration, we understand here this idea of sustenance and provision. And our first point that we come to in verse 10, I've titled a changing passion. A changing passion. Passion in verse 10. The condition of passion in our point is revealed right at the beginning in the first clause where it says, But I rejoice. But I rejoice. Now, we've seen much about rejoicing in the book of Philippians. We've seen joy and rejoicing mentioned 17 times, including our present text. This will be the last time. That this reference is made in the book of Philippians. But it connects for us all of those different elements of joy and rejoicing that he has previously brought forward. And his rejoicing, as we see there, is in the Lord. And we've seen that before. And that's where we've identified that the only true rejoicing can be. If we are rejoicing in other circumstances in our lives... And there are plenty of reasons why we could and should. They're temporary. The only permanent issue of rejoicing in which we can rejoice is in Christ. He is the one who is the source of ultimate rejoicing. And as a result of that, and, and as he reflects upon that, it shows us why we see the amount of his rejoicing. That it is greatly, that I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And this needs to be our consideration every day of our lives, beloved. We need to be continually rejoicing in the Lord. This is the importance of spending time in His Word. This is why it is so vital, if possible, to begin your days in God's Word. Because it immediately centers us on what the source of our rejoicing is. And throughout the day, where the Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing, the way we understand the necessity of that is because it helps us see the connection we make to our Father. So, this is that critically focused section of having our hearts focused on rejoicing in the Lord. So, that is the component of Uh, Of passion that we see, that great passion to rejoice in the Lord, the changing component of our first point, a changing passion, is the rest of verse 10. And Paul reflects a change from the previous condition to the current condition of provision. And he introduces the subject of our title, a provisional consideration, and that topic of provision, which is monetary support. He indicates initially that they have revived their concern for him. Now, this word concern here has been a very important word throughout the book of Philippians. It was back in verse 2 of chapter 4, where it says, I urge Udia and Cynthia to live in harmony with the Lord. And and in that place, that, that word urge and concern are the same root word. Back in chapter two and verse two was the same word, two five, three fifteen, and three nineteen. So we see that this is the fifth time that this verb for concern has been used. And what it means is that it is a thought process that is leading to an action. When he, define, or when he translates it as urge back in verse 2 of chapter 4, he is asking him to think about something and then to take action on it. And that's an important consideration that, that we need to understand as he reflects upon this concern that they had for him. It is a thought in their minds that was then to lead to action. And in our context, it is a thought about Paul's monetary needs. Now, as we read that first clause in verse 10, uh, now I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. If we stop there, we might tend to think what? Maybe there was a time where they didn't have a concern for him. Because right, now he's, he's made a statement of time and emphasis at the beginning of it where he says that now at last, and, and you've revived your concern for me. But that's not the case. That's not what's going on here. So before one might speculate that at some time they didn't have concern for him, he clarifies by noting in the next stanza of the verse... Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So there is a revived concern that existed before, but for some reason there was no opportunity to pursue it. This term, lack of opportunity, is a key phrase in our verse. And it's often translated as lacking occasion or lacking season. So now when we're putting this all together and we're thinking about how they did have a concern, a financial concern that they were unable to meet that's now been revived, but prior to that they lacked opportunity. They weren't able to give. For whatever reason, the season of their lives was such that they could not bring forward and give to Paul and to his ministry the way that they desired. This is is an important reality, and we're going to see some other connections to it, but as we look at other parts of the Scripture on this subject, but we always, as we understand and we read God's Word, it's not just to be drawn in to see the power of this great church. It's to bring that application to ourselves. And to start to think about our own lives. So our own perspective on giving is where we're to be drawing ourselves as we start to consider this. And as we start to consider this situation where for whatever reason the Philippians were not able at this time to give to Paul's ministry as they desired. Well what is the context of this? That becomes so important because what's he talking about? I mean, this is something that Paul knows well, the Philippians know well, but when we read it, a couple thousand years later, we're going, what? I mean, what are you talking about here? Well, if we look down to verses 15 and 16, we see some of the context. We'll uh, talk about these later, but just for purposes of some story. Cursory information, verse 15 says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So what's it telling us here? It's telling us that the church in Philippi has previously given to Paul's ministry. So when he begins that statement in verse 10 and he says that now at last you have revived your concern for me. That revived concern is that there previously was an expression of of their giving to his ministry. And not just once but repeatedly. So Paul is referencing to some previous giving that had gone on. The Philippians had given Paul repeated gifts when he was in Thessalonica. Okay, so now we want to start to put our thinking caps on. We want to start to kind of thinking of assimilating the whole scripture. Back to the book of Acts. This is why it is so important to be reading Acts. Acts. In one of the Bible reading programs that I suggest to some people, uh, and some of us in the church are using it now, it has you reading Acts every day. And some people think, why do I need to read Acts every day? Because the entire timeline of the New Testament is connected there. So if we jump back to Acts chapter 16, a very familiar text to us, we think of Paul meeting with Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics, Lydia of Thyatira. Gotta love that name, just kind of rolls off the tongue. And Lydia was down by the river and Paul went down to the river to look for a time of prayer and there were these women there. And so Lydia comes to know the Lord, then she takes the message of the gospel and all of her family are converted And then Paul is getting followed around Philippi by this little slave girl, isn't she? Or isn't he? Yes, Um, get my pronouns proper there. So, she is crying out, behold servants of the Most High God. Paul knows that she is possessed by a demon and that she is bringing dispersion upon his message of the gospel. So he casts the demon out of her. Her owners are furious because they've lost big bucks in her ability to use the demonic realm to do whatever they did or she did. And so they take Paul to the circle of the town. They beat he and Silas badly and they throw him in prison, not just in prison, but into the inner stocks. And there there is the great earthquake as they are singing and the jailer gets ready to commit suicide because he thinks they've escaped. And Paul says, no, we're here, don't do that. He brings the lights on. Brings Paul and Silas out, bandages their wounds in his home, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And we have one of the most powerful texts in the Scripture, in Acts 16, 31, where it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. And they get saved that night, and he baptizes them, and then they go back to jail. This is Philippi. What happens in chapter 17? On to Thessalonica. Boom, our text. Gifts in Philippi. Lydia and the others who Paul has had a massive impact on. The jailer. And all of these who are like, oh my gosh, look at this guy. He has shown us the truth of Christ. They're desirous of encouraging him in his ministry. They give him a gift. They give him financial means to continue on his journey. Remember, as he goes to Thessalonica... Just a couple days back in Ephesus, back in chapter 15, he had no thought of going to Philippi and to Thessalonica, but he had a vision. So all of a sudden, change of plans. Change of plans means more money. Kids just got back from a little road trip, right? We're going through Arizona, going here. Oh, we want to take a little detour. Going to take an extra day. Dad could use a little more money. Well... There you go. Paul needed some extra cash, and there they are to help. So these, this is the context of our whole discussion and all that's going on here. This gift that was given in the time frame in between these is about 10 years. Somewhere between 6 to 10 years, depending on where you place the exact dates. You know, Usually in our writings of the New Testament books, we have a year or two in the events because we can't piece everything together to the date. So somewhere between six and ten years ago is when this first gift was given. And through that time, they have wanted to participate in the ministry with Paul. I want to support this man. I mean, let's face it. as a guy planting churches all over the world. Nobody's doing what he's doing. I want to be behind that. You know, we look at our missionaries. I've been reading some material that we got from uh, uh, the Rattans in uh, Uganda and looking at their ministry and the Housley's were here not long ago and you see what they're doing. And when you see a supernatural work of God in the lives of people, you want to get behind it, don't you? I mean, it's amazing to see. When I look at, at, at men who are teaching pastors, uh, Johnny Gravino in Italy and, and uh, you know Mark Scarborough uh, doing this in Lebanon and Fernando Hymus in Colombia and Fowley Ravahangi in Madagascar. And we see these massive works of God. It's like, yes, I want to be a part of that. Well, that's how they felt. They had this great desire to participate, but they didn't have opportunity. There was just no way, despite their desire, that they could move forward. Even though they'd given this gift from Paul. If we went back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 9, we would see another reference to this whole section. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 9. Reads, as Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and here the second letter to them, actually fourth, but second that we have. And when I was present with you, that is the Corinthians, and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need in everything, and I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. Paul leaves from Philippi to Thessalonica, he gets a gift. Later on, he's in Corinth, and the Philippians who are in the region of Macedonia send another gift so that as the Corinthians are giving Paul a lot of grief about money and everything else that he does, he says, you know, others came and supported me. And so he records there more about these gifts And this whole time, again, the Philippians had desired to give. We see that even in the verb tenses, although it's a little harder for us to see in English. But the last two verbs in verse 10, where you were concerned and you lacked opportunity, those are verbs that are called imperfects. This is kind of a Bible study, so I think it's good for us to talk a little bit about some of those details and some of the importance of that grammar. Now, imperfect verbs are super important in Mark's gospel. They are used more in Mark's gospel than anywhere else in the scripture. An imperfect verb, we really don't have anything quite like it in English. What it signifies is a past ongoing action. So it's something that happened before, but it wasn't just like a one-time isolated event, but it was ongoing. And doesn't that make sense with what we've just talked about? Their concern which they had. It was ongoing. They wanted to give through this whole period, but they couldn't. So also their lacking opportunity. It was an ongoing situation that they wanted to remedy, but they just simply did not have the means. So these verbs, although again, really the only indication we have in our New American Standard is that translation were concerned does kind of show that there was somewhat of that ongoing action in past time. So they just simply weren't able to give these gifts. Now, when we think about giving, it's important for us to understand how that comes to us. What do we do? Well, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There are two main places that speak about giving in the scripture. The most uh, lengthy one is in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The next is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2. Very important verses for us. 1 Corinthians 16 and verses 1 and 2. Let me read them for you. You can follow along if you've turned there in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. All right, so he's clearly talking about giving. The collection for the saints at the beginning of verse 1. This is for the work of the churches outside of their church. It would apply inside their church as well. And if we go from the back of the verses forward, he says he doesn't want a collection to have to be made when he comes. He doesn't want to come and show this great need and be in a place where he thinks he's guilting them into giving. That's not what giving is about. We are never to be giving out of guilt. If ever our giving to the church or any individual is out of guilt, it's from a wrong heart and a wrong motive. And that's what he's telling us here. Don't give out of guilt. He also says in verse 2, on the first day of every week, there is a ton of information in that phrase. On the first day of every week. It tells us first off, when the early church met. The first day of every week. What was the last day of the week? Shabbat. It was the Sabbath. The day that God rested. The first day of the week is when the church was meeting. And when Paul told them that they were to prepare for this collection. That's when offerings are to be taken. The first day of the week. And each one of you, so it's an individual element, is to put aside and to save. You are to take away from that which you have earned in order to give to the work of the ministry. And then notice what else it says there as he may prosper. As he may prosper. Here is probably the most challenging part of trying to speak to a church about their giving because it is to come from that in which we prosper. And what is our problem? What is my problem? Perhaps some of your problems. Sometimes we don't see ourselves as all that prosperous because we have all these bills. Do you have any bills? I have a few bills. Kids in college, uh, you know, car payments, cars breaking down, house payments, houses breaking down, payments. They're just out there everywhere. You know, it's, it's electric bills going up, it's getting hotter, and Where are we prospering? What is that in which we prosper? How do we assess the things in our lives that are prosperous? What are our basic needs? What are above them? This becomes the rub. This becomes the most challenging part of discussing giving in any church. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that is because I don't know the answer for you. I know what the answer is for me, Because I understand what God has given me. And I know you understand that too. The question is, are we rightly assessing the difference between what we believe our needs are or those things that we have made our needs? But the reality for our text is to understand that the Philippians, they were in a horrible situation. They could not give for six to ten years. Their financial provisions were nil, whether they were under persecution from the church and unable to work and unable to feed their families. But we need to understand that there was a circumstance and a time in which they were not able to give, and Paul recognizes that. This is the exact same condition of the widow's might. God would never ask someone to give their last cent. The widow's might is a parable and an illustration of the Pharisees bilking widows for their very last cent. It is not an example of honorable giving to the Lord. So, here we have Paul's description of what giving is supposed to look like. And in all this, Paul was greatly rejoicing in the Lord. Never upset. We know that because in verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly is a past tense verb. He was rejoicing even before they could give. Because he knew their heart. He knew they were desirous of giving to him. And that past tense verb where it says, but I rejoiced, past tense, shows us that he was delighted in all that they were doing, even if they were Unable to give to the work of his ministry. He's never upset with them. Even when they couldn't give. Even in really hard times. It's actually what we see also described for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The scripture that I referred to you earlier as the other text in the New Testament that talks much about giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 reads, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God... "...which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord." Showing for us there that even amidst great poverty and really hard times... This church was able to give. So again, we assess ourselves and where are we in our provision and needs. Paul's been presented with another gift now from the Philippians and he's greatly rejoicing. And the language is very picturesque. It's like he's picturing a flower that has been waiting to blossom. You know, I I used to love my rose garden in California. I keep threatening to buy a few more and put them in out front here and and grow some. But I, I just always was so ecstatic, particularly in the spring of the year and the late fall, when the last buds would come on the rose plant and they'd be all over and they would just start to open up. And the, and the beauty that would just explode out of these flowers I had a rose that was red and yellow, kind of a variegated. And you couldn't quite tell what the flower was going to look like when it was in the bud. But you just start to see it expand. This is exactly the phraseology that Paul is using. Their desire for giving is just budding. It's just coming to fruition. And he is ecstatic about it. He is delighted that now they are able to come forward and to help. The reason is that it's still hard times for them. It's not like everything's great. It's not like they won the lottery. But now they have been saving up through this period. They have been preparing to where they can give, and now they are in that place. There are times where our giving may not be what we would like it to be. The scripture tells us to put aside and save at the first of every week. And whenever I say this, and whenever I teach on it, and maybe it won't happen today, but someone comes up and says, well, pastor, I give like this. Is that okay? Pastor, I do this. Is that okay? I am not the judge. I just tell you what the book says. You do what's on your own heart. But that's what the scripture says that we are to put aside at the beginning of every week as we prosper. And the reason is because then we can assess. We are supposed to be so connected with our finances and the prospering that God gives us that we can, on a week-by-week basis, say, you know, I've got a little more. Or maybe I, I, I could pull from some of these things and I could give a bit more. Or I can't give more. I've had these things come up and i got everything coming down around me. And it removes what we first talked about anybody giving out of guilt. Because the New Testament only speaks about free will giving. There are no tithes. There are no taxes. There is giving from our hearts to the Lord. And that's all that's being expressed and it is all over this verse. And all over these verses that we've talked about. Paul's response is passionate rejoicing due to the change of opportunity And this changing passion that now is going on. That leads us to our second point, which is a cyclical portion in verses 11 to 12. A cyclical portion. Verse 11 says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 11 begins with Paul explaining his prior statement in verse 10. Not that I speak from want. Philippians, you've given me a gift. I'm not speaking in my great rejoicing because I wanted or I needed that gift. I am rejoicing because of you and your hearts to give. And this beautiful flower that I'm seeing open up because of your continued desire for me and to be a part of this ministry. He doesn't speak from want. He's rejoicing, not in the gift given or because of the gift, but because of the Philippians. And again, their consideration and now their opportunity. And Paul understands living without provisions. And he doesn't speak from want. The word want here means poverty. And we see this uh, again, it's the exact same u- word used in Mark 12 which is the parable of the widow's might. He doesn't speak from want, and that's not the type of giving that we're to have. Paul goes on in verse 11 to explain his statement, and he begins by saying, He's learned to be content, he's satisfied, he's self sufficient. It means he's independent from anyone or anything else. His sufficiency is in Christ. And that's where ours all needs to be. The scripture tells us that God will what? In Hebrews, never leave us nor forsake us. We talk about that in a variety of context, in physical suffering and in difficulty and in many different spiritual conditions. The context in Hebrews is exactly the same as here. It's money. Scripture elsewhere tells us that you will always have your basic needs taken care of by the Lord. Food, water. So here we see that Paul is satisfied because he trusts in the Lord. There are, are similar usages for this all over the New Testament. We see it in uh, Luke three fourteen, In Luke chapter 3 and vor- verse 14, we read... Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, "And what about us? What shall we do?" And he said to them, "Do not take money for, from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages." So as he talks about not being in want and being content in his circumstances, so he's taught throughout First Thessalonians 4:12 also it, it is another translation of that. And what is the, important, the importance of contentment in our world? Our world is all about removing contentment in our consumer-minded mentality that you always need something better. Whatever you've got, there's a model that's better and you should have it. This was the, the Burger King slogan. You know, have it your... Or the, yeah, Burger King, have it your way. You know, this, and it's continued and it's been much more... Uh, manipulated and made much more deceitful. But everybody's telling us you should have something greater. Our phones. I am convinced that our phones are designed to last one year and 11 months and 15 days. So two weeks before your contract is up, your phone is going to die. So you can buy another one. And I I know that's not the case. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um, But the reality is that we're told that we always need something more so that we are not content. And Paul continues to describe the condition of his contentment in verse 12. And he begins by explaining that he knows how to get along with humble means. The King James Version translates this, I know how to be abased. That's a good translation. The ESV says, I know how to be brought low. Another great translation. Paul knew how to live with the most meager conditions. He knew how to live with a provision of some food and some water and nothing else. And it wasn't that he was like, oh, woe is me because this is all I've got. He was content. He was self-satisfied. He was sufficient and needing nothing in that. There was no whining. That's okay. God is taking care of me because I have these. And not only did he know how to live in humble means, but also in prosperity. Literally, he knew how to live when he abounded. Here's the idea of our second point a cyclical portion. From having next to nothing to being overflowing. And and even in the abounding, the idea of contentment is paramount. You know, it it may not be easy to be content in poverty. Particularly if you understand some of the excesses and other things that might be out there. But so also in wealth. I'm I'm tending to think that it is more difficult to be content... In wealth, than it is in poverty. Because oh, it's just one nicer thing. It's just one upgrade from what I have. And there's always something more. Well, Paul further expresses that this is any and every circumstance. So, in every possible provision, every part of his life, Paul knows this cyclical portion of both sides, and of being satisfied, of being content and fulfilled whatever he has. He further confirms his area of contentment with two more contrasting pairs in verse 12. And he describes these as having learned a secret or mystery. Now, this is not some kind of uh, magical thing, or this is not something inappropriate, or something pagan, he speaks of it as a secret or as a mystery because so few people get it. So few people are content in Paul's day and age. How much more hours? So he speaks of having learned this secret. And the first cyclical pair are those of being filled and going hungry. Again, the challenge of being filled is wanting more and becoming subject to gluttony or wanting better than what we already have been provided when we consider the, the second component uh, of being filled. And then the be- becoming hungry, obviously, is, is lacking, and the difficulty in that. You know, I remember well uh, in college, uh, my first year as a freshman at the University of Puget Sound, and we'd moved off campus because we were sure we could do so much better. And before long, you know, the four of us, there's three of us in the house. There's about five of us that are living there. And we would make our run to Piggly Wiggly, which I love that there's Piggly Wigglies here. No one in Idaho or California ever heard of Piggly Wiggly. And we'd run to Piggly Wiggly, and we would buy grocery bags full of Top Ramen. I mean, we would go in and just get a cart full of Top Ramen. And we'd each be carrying out like three paper bags of Top Ramen. And that's what we ate. And we thought it was pretty great. Now today, I don't know why, but I'm not as excited about Top Ramen. Maybe a little less contentment. Maybe a problem here that I'm confessing. Perhaps you can relate. I don't know. Well, being hungry is this idea of fasting. That's a really important concept in Matthew 4-2. It is something really badly understood by almost all of the modern church in whatever means The, uh, the charismatics, take fasting to a radical and extreme level, and many of the conservatives pretend that it's something that ought not be done. Fasting is repeatedly in the Scripture. It's in the Scripture right here. It's the same word. And it's something that we are to be doing. Why? Not so that we can show people how religious we are, how pious we are, but because it reminds us of the Lord. When our tummies are growling, the point of fasting is that we would come before the Lord in prayer, and we're not eating our tumblies are grumbling a little more. Mine makes it about two hours before the first grumbling starts. Usually I do pretty good to lunch, but if I start not having a meal, it crumbles a little louder. Sometimes audibly. Diane hasn't complained yet. But um, that's the importance of fasting. And that's what Paul is alluding to here when he talks about this idea of, of how he has learned to be content and how he can live in prosperity and being filled and going hungry. That is, fasting. Because it reminds him to continually be reliant upon the Lord. And that is such an important component for us. The second cyclical pair are those of having abundance and suffering need. The, that word that he brings forward for us, As abundance is the same word, abound, that we had repeated in our earlier verse. And so, he's using that same word over again here, twice in the same verse, to help us understand this overflowing condition that he had. And likewise, the word need is that same form that we saw back from verse 11. Paul is confirming for us, beloved, in these verses the amazing joy that the Philippians experienced in giving, and what their giving looked like, and what biblical giving looked like, and that it was that act and that heart attitude which Paul was so blessed by, and which the Lord is blessed by. The Lord tells us that we are to give, and one of the translations in 2 Corinthians 8 is that we are to give hilariously. We are to give so much that it seems just hilarious in what we would give. And the concept of our giving, beloved, it is hilarious because God rewards us for our giving and yet he has given us everything that we give. He gives it to us and then as we give a meager portion back, he rewards us for that. Who does that? That is the amazing God who loves us so And who we desire to serve in a greater way. And whom because of this element that's being placed in their minds, Paul is rejoicing with them. But it is more joy again because of them than the gift. And he is content regardless of the circumstances. And what we really need to take to heart is this perspective of giving. Desire versus ability the sacrificial component of our giving and our preparation to give. And that never is this an element of guilt. And also the vital issue of contentment. And recognize where we are in our lives and whether we're content with what we have or whether we create a situation in our lives where we are discontent When in fact, as we know, we are, and I have stated repeatedly, the the wealthiest people ever at any time on the face of this earth. The poorest of the United States of America in the 21st century is more wealthy than the richest 0.1% of the population ever to walk this planet anywhere else upon it. The poorest of our country is more wealthy than the top 0.1%. Where does that place us? Well, it's a wonderful and vital issue for us to recognize as we consider our lives, as we consider an understanding of our giving and of our satisfaction. We'll continue on with this with our next couple points next week. And for now, I pray that these will be things that you can contemplate, read and rethink and go back over some of those verses and that the Lord will encourage your heart with them.